0: Hello, and welcome to the RP HealthCast by Rooney Partners. I'm your host, Jeffrey Friedman. We're about 10 months into this pandemic and into studying the effects the novel coronavirus has on the human body. Now scientists are learning more and more about the virus and how it affects the body each and every day. But a terrifying thing about the disease is that it appears to affect people very differently depending on their age, on their gender, and their genetic makeup. Now with almost 9 million Americans and 45 million people globally affected by the virus, scientists have been able to classify the disease into several different stages. And by doing so, they can begin to treat the symptoms and the underlying disease much better. And this is lowering the hospitalization rates and the mortality rates. So last month with the announcement of President Trump contracting the disease, these lessons learned along with new medical findings were certainly put to the test. And the doctors and scientists at Walter Reed Medical Center were able to provide unprecedented treatment to the world's most famous patient. To talk to us today about the different stages of the disease and the potential different courses of treatment, we're very lucky to welcome Monique Burlett. Monique is a freelance science journalist who covers synthetic biology, genetics, and neuroscience. She currently writes bylines in many different science publications, including Scientific American, National Geographic, Science, and Wired, to name a few. And over the past year, she's written in-depth pieces about the coronavirus, including most recently, The President's Infection and His Road to Recovery. Monique, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure,
1: thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Great.
0: Now, you wrote a fantastic piece in Scientific American this month about the different stages of disease progression a coronavirus patient may go through. And you applied or you kind of superimposed these stages on the president's infection. Now, I'd like to start a discussion today at first from a very high level. And if you could talk about those different stages that a patient may go through in terms of the disease journey. And can you talk to us about what they may be experiencing?
1: Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, So, you know, I mean, I kind of, just to begin, you know, back in January when the pandemic started, uh, doctors really didn't know very much about how COVID-19 progressed. Um, You know, in the early days, it was a new virus. Doctors were scrambling to figure out uh, what treatments to use. Of course, there was no tested treatments and doctors were really just experimenting, calling each other on the phone, comparing notes. Um, I actually wrote another piece about this too in Scientific American, um, but now it's October, You know, we're 10 months into this pandemic and I think doctors have a much better understanding of how to treat their patients. And what's really emerging is this idea that COVID-19 progresses in predictable stages and these stages have important implications on how the disease is treated. So um, let's just start with the first phase. Which is known as the viral phase. Um, You know, and this typically happens in the first week, give or take. Uh, There's no hard and fast sort of deadlines, but, um, you know, this is when the virus enters your body, starts replicating. Uh, Most people, of course, don't know exactly when this is happening, but about two to 14 days later, they go on to get symptoms. Um, And those symptoms are just kind of symptoms you would feel with any other virus, you know, fever, aches and pains, cough. Um, One thing with COVID that's unique is that people tend to lose their sense of smell and taste, and this is not like when you get a cold and you have a stuffy nose um, and you have congestion that gets in the way of tasting food, but it's actually just caused from the virus itself. Um, So this is like a very contagious part of the the disease, and treatments during this phase um, are treatments that are targeted at the virus itself and, and fighting the virus. So monoclonal antibodies for one. Um, this is you know the ones that Trump received from Regeneron. These sort of kind of act to mimic what your immune system would do if it were actually vaccinated. Um, you know, it's these artificial sort of antibodies that shore up the virus and stop it from entering your cells. Um, another treatment for the viral stage is remdesivir which is an antiviral and stops the virus from replicating. Uh, This should also be given, I guess, during this phase of disease. And now, um, you know, many people will go on and kind of get better after this phase. And and most, you know, many people won't even need these treatments. Um, But if they don't get better, what tends to happen is they go into this second immune phase. And that happens around the second week, you know, around seven to eight days, you'll see people kind of getting into this and, What they'll see is that they're gonna see their oxygen levels drop in this phase. They're gonna have some difficulty breathing. And this is really when most people head to the hospital. Um, And it's there that they can go on to get that cytokine storm syndrome, which is this hyperactive response of the immune system. um, When your immune system kind of releases all these chemicals called cytokines that signal to the body it's under attack and they need to ramp up the production of, you know, other immune cells, macrophages, fever gets ramped up, inflammation happens. And in doing so, the immune system can actually start to cause harm to the body. Um, this is when you see those, those telltale signs in the lungs that uh, organ damage is happening there. And sometimes this is, this is what causes the, the difficulty breathing and can lead to a patient needing to get on a, vet, a ventilator. Um, there can also be damage to other organs uh, like the kidneys and the heart. Uh, now the treatment at this stage is geared towards the immune system. So that's when people will tend to get steroids. Steroids kind of tamp down the immune system. And uh, you don't want to give steroids usually when patients are in that viral phase because in the viral phase, you really want the immune system there kind of fighting off the virus. But in this phase where the immune system's the one doing the damage, that's when you'll get steroids and things like that. Um, and sort of after this phase, you know, most doctors degre- agree that there's two phases to COVID. There's that viral phase and there's infl- this uh, inflammation, hyper-inflammatory immune phase. But there are other things that happen with COVID um, that some doctors are calling you know, separate phases. And some of the, that has to do with some of the complications that arise from the inflammatory immune stage, like blood clotting. Um, you know, The doctors I talked to said, the one thing that's really unusual with COVID, I mean, it, it can happen with other infectious diseases, but they're seeing a lot more with COVID is that people are getting blood clots. Um, They're getting them in their veins. So they'll have like a deep vein thrombosis like in their legs um, or they're having pulmonary embolisms uh, blocking the lungs. And they're also getting arterial clotting which can cause stroke. Um, And another thing that doctors are seeing are bacterial infections of the lungs. And even sepsis, which is a bacterial infection of the blood. And that can kind of happen as a result from this inflammatory uh, immune phase. Um, And then the last phase of COVID is what people are now calling like that long tail or these people who are referred to as long haulers. And it's patients like one, two, three months out that still just like can't seem to feel better. Um, They're still having trouble breathing. They may still be tired. A lot of patients uh, complain about brain fog, trouble sleeping. Um, This is kind of the final phase of COVID.
0: Right. And that doesn't necessarily have an end date. Yeah,
1: I don't think so. I think we're still learning. You know, it's only been 10 10 months. So, yeah. yeah.
0: So, all right, let's start over a little bit. And you mentioned in the first phase, in the viral replication phase, you know, there's kind of like that exposure or incubation period. And a person may not even know that they're sick. They don't have any symptoms. Could they still be contagious at this point?
1: Um, Or could they be contagious? Yeah. Yeah. And actually that's one of the biggest problems, I think, with COVID is that patients, you know, I've seen some studies suggesting they are the most contagious, uh, maybe a day or two before they get symptoms. And I think a lot of people are attributing that to why this uh, virus has been able to spread so well.
0: Yeah, so I, using the word spread, I mean, we're hearing a lot about that with what happened to the president, you know, and what took place at the White House. There. It was called super spreader events. Now, can you explain what a super spreader event is? And could the president have gotten sick at one of these events?
1: Sure, yeah. So a super spreader event. Um, This happens when one person infects a disproportionate number of people. Um, You know, I don't know if you've seen these statistics around COVID. They say that each person who's sick can infect like two to three people. But we know though that there are instances where they can infect many more. In fact, in my hometown of Boston, back in February, there was this infamous meeting at Biogen, Mm -hmm. um, where, you know, all these executives were flown in from around the world, about 200 people were there. Two days later, about 100 people left uh, with COVID, (laughs) and they went back to their respective places and spread it further. So I think these events, like now we're kind of understanding these events are actually playing a big role in this pandemic. Um, You know, for example, there was this research out of Hong Kong showing that between 10 and 20 percent of infected people are actually responsible for about 80% of the coronavirus spread. Um, so, I mean, did this happen with president Trump? Did this happen at the white house? You know, Anthony Fauci uh, said it did. So I'll agree with him.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> <it probably did. laughs> I will always agree with Anthony Fauci. Agree. <laughs> yeah, For sure. So you mentioned that most people head to the hospital, you know, after this, when, when things get so severe in terms of if, if they have trouble breathing or, or if these symptoms get more than a little annoying and they're put on a whole regiment of, you know, uh, you know, if it's pre-steroids, they're put on the remdesivirs. It seemed like the president got everything all at once, or at least that's what he was saying when he went to Walter Reed. Do you, is that a normal course of treatment? No,
1: I don't think there was anything normal (laughs) about um, the course of treatment, from what I understand. So I guess like if we go through the timeline, um, you know, Trump, officially Trump said he started feeling sick on Thursday night, um, which is when he got a COVID test. And then the next, or you know, early in the morning Friday, he tweeted that he had tested positive. Um, At that point, I guess he was reported to have had congestion and a fever. Um, and he was given a course of, uh, those monoclonal antibodies from Regeneron, which would have been appropriate, um, for that phase if he was in the viral phase. Um, and then Friday, he went to Walter Reed, I believe it was on Friday. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think there was just a lot of confusion about that because his doctors were saying he feels fine. Um. He's at Walter Reed and we hear he gets dexamethasone and he was also put on remdesivir, I believe, which would also be appropriate for the viral phase. But the that is doctors administered steroids is a bit confusing because as I said, um, steroids can actually be damaging to somebody in those early phases. Like you don't want to hurt uh, your immune system's ability to fight off that virus. Um, And, you know, I've seen some explanations for that. Um, Some people, have sort of postulated, you know, maybe because he got these antibodies, um, they just wanted to, you know, they figured, well, his immune system has these uh, artificial antibodies that'll fight off the virus. Let's give him the steroid to make sure that just as like a preventative. Um, but then I heard, you know, what's more probably likely is that when he went to the hospital, maybe on that Friday, he was actually entering the immune phase. And so maybe, uh, you know, he wasn't like his timeline, I guess he said he started getting symptoms Thursday. Maybe that's true, right? I mean, people can get symptoms anywhere between two and 14 days after they are infected. But I think what's becoming clear is he was probably entering that immune phase because later we also found out, well, his oxygen levels dropped. Um, You know, he had some quote unquote expected findings in his lungs. And I'm not sure anyone really knows. I'm not sure anyone's gotten more clarification on that. But I think that is probably the likeliest explanation would explain which would explain why he got steroids, and it would actually mean that his doctors were just following um, the standard protocol okay
0: and you mentioned that immune overdrive phase and, and tied that with uh, cytokine storms. Can you explain what exactly that does in a body like a, a cytokine storm? What are some things that may come of it and
1: Yeah, so the cytokine storm is basically like your body is just overreacting, um, releasing all these chemicals that say, you know, that ramp up inflammation, ramp up immune cells, um, ramp up fever. And uh, it's really an overreaction. And what, as I said, you know, this can go on to cause um, organ damage, people are having heart issues, kidney issues. Um, And then the biggest, you know, I think with COVID, again, it's like the biggest issue is this clotting. Um, is that people are, you know, and even like you hear, you know, when I um, reported a, a story for Scientific American back in the spring, all these doctors were puzzled in New York during the surge, they said people would go home, they would like get this cytokine phase, they'd be in the hospital, and then they'd start to feel better, and they'd go home, and they'd come back like a week later, and suddenly they couldn't breathe well, and they were having all these issues, and finally, you know, they just pieced it together, well, these people are, are experiencing blood clotting, you know, and they're coming back in because they have pulmonary embolisms, you know, lodged in their lungs now, and they can't breathe. And this, I believe, is when the clotting starts, is during that immune overdrive. Um, it has something to do with that, 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 you know, inside of your blood vessels get hypercoagulable, and you start getting these clots. And I, and I really think that is one of the biggest issues with COVID and the biggest uh, sort of long-term effect of that cytokine storm.
0: Right. And, and we still don't know enough about it or nearly enough about it. And, but that's different than what you mentioned before about the long haul, right? The, the long haulers, if you will. And I guess long haulers, those are people that have recovered from COVID-19, but they're still having recurring symptoms. They can't get their health back to what it was pre-COVID-19. Are we treating, are they supposed to be getting treatment for these symptoms or are they just waiting it out?
1: Um, Yeah, I think they are. I think they're being seen as more outpatient, sort of in an outpatient way. Um, You know, people are, from what I hear from doctors, uh, they're just treating them like they're treating the symptoms. So patients who have muscle and joint pain are getting, you know, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like, um, you know, Advil and and such. Uh, People who are having insomnia, they're treating them with melatonin and antihistamines. You know, people who have these like long fevers that just won't go away, um, they're just giving them Tylenol. Um, I think increasing exercise, people who are really just have lost that lung capacity, have even, you know, they've started prescribing, they work with physical therapists. And of course, for the emotional impact of all of this stuff, um, depression and anxiety, I think mental health referrals are up. So I really think it's just a treatment-based um, I'm sorry, a symptom-based uh, treatment strategy is, is what the doctors are doing. And, you know, I have talked to some doctors who say this isn't so, I mean, this is unusual. We're seeing a lot of people with these problems, but they said, you know, it's not dissimilar to um, like chronic fatigue syndrome and, by, you know, these sort of long-term effects of maybe an infection, you know, I, I'm not sure what virus causes chronic fatigue syndrome, but they said, you know, there's, there is some precedent for this. Yeah, I don't think they have great answers. I think they're just kind of treating of the symptoms with what we have.
0: Yeah, and that's that's great. I mean, thank you. That's very helpful. Now, as we're in the final days right now of the election cycle, thank goodness. But, you know, as you watch the president on the campaign trail now, he's talking about he's recovered, he's immune. You know, a could he be fully recovered by now? B could he be immune? What does this mean in your eyes?
1: Yeah. Well, I think he could be recovered. Um, so I know that his doctor, let's see, I'm just looking at my timeline here. You know, on on October 10th, his doctor uh, releases this memo and he says he's no longer infectious. And um, they did all these, you know, I think they gave him a PCR test. And later it was revealed that... Um, The PCR CT value and the CT value of a PCR uh, test is how many cycles it takes to detect the virus. And for somebody to be considered, you know, kind of recovered and non-infectious anymore, you have to have something like higher than 30, a CT value of 33. And I think he had something like 34.5 or something like that. So he he had cleared that viral phase. He has he no longer had infectious virus. So he was recovered in that way. I mean, whether or not he's immune, I don't think anyone could say that um, for sure. I mean, we do, there's so many questions about are, is anybody, what is the immunity to COVID-19? How long does it last? You know, what does it look like? I mean, we don't, we're not even really sure. Is it, does immunity, can we test people for antibodies? And if they don't have antibodies, which a lot of people who have had COVID-19 do not have antibodies. Are we sure that are they not immune or did maybe they have another form of immunity through their T cells or some other sort of immune cell? So we can't really say uh, for sure, I think, whether he's immune. And I've also heard some people trying to, you know, discussing whether or not the use of these monoclonal antibodies could have, which are basically synthetic antibodies that are kind of stand-ins for your own body's antibody maybe the, when people who get those will not actually develop their own antibodies to the virus. Um, but again, like, I think this is all, I don't think there's anything, you know, definitely understood about this, but I think it's probably unlikely that he's fully immune.
0: Okay. Still too early to tell for any of this. I mean, it's, it's incredible how much, how long 2020 has felt, but you know, how short the time period is and how little we know about this.
1: I totally. Yeah. I mean, I guess the last thing I would say is just that I think um, we have made a lot of progress and doctors have learned a lot, you know, just in the past 10 months. Um, I think in the beginning, uh, treatments were being given maybe out of sync with what's known about these phases. And um, I think now, you know, that may not have benefited patients, but now it seems like people are getting a better handle on it. And, you know, I think that's. I mean, I'm optimistic. I think that's just gonna sort of improve. And I think treatment's getting better for COVID-19. So I think that's a positive
0: thing. That is a, definitely a positive thing. Now, Monique, we've been talking about the disease, you know, as a standard thing, but there's been a lot of talk and a little bit of research done about the disease changing, about mutations. And we hear about the flu every year. We need different flu shots because the flu mutates in, into a different virus. What do you hear about the coronavirus?
1: Yeah, well, this is um, a contentious issue, I will say. And I have written about this. Um, So there is this uh, mutation in the coronavirus. It's called the D614G mutation. And um, it's sort of quickly, you know, I'm not sure when it appeared, but now it appears that most viruses circulating have this um, sort of mutation. And there has been a lot of fear that this mutation makes the virus um, more transmissible. Or, and I think, you know, in the beginning, people wondered if it made it more um, sort of uh, deadly or affected the disease, of course. And um, so, yeah, there's been a lot written about this. And I think I'll just let you know uh, what we know. Um, from what I've learned from virologists, um, you know, viruses don't like fundamentally change that easily. And um, although there has been some, you know, experimental evidence suggesting these viruses uh, with this mutation, it may be easier for them to get into cells. Um, I'm not sure this has fully been verified by actual, you know, laboratory experiments that show that the virus can get into animals and transmit better. Um, And even if it can transmit just slightly better, I think many virologists, you know, even if those experiments are done and we find, oh, well, this mutation may make it easier to transmit. And that turns out to be true through very, um, you know, infectivity studies where they take the virus and they actually test it in an animal rather than in a cell culture or just through a PCR sort of test. If this turns out to be true, I think most virologists that I've spoken to said, it's really nothing that's going to affect um, the pandemic in a drastic way. It, even really in that much of an impactful way. Um, you know, the thing about SARS-CoV-2 is that it's already really, really good at transmitting. Um, so, you know, that's, I think, a reassuring sort of thing from virologists. And there is of course no evidence that it changes the disease severity. Um, I don't know, in fact, you know, some virologists would say that I've spoken to, um, what happens with most viruses is that they actually lessen in severity, like the, the disease lessens in severity over time. And I mean, in some ways, are we seeing that with SARS-CoV-2? I have been hearing that, you know, uh, cases of severe COVID are going down and, and we don't know. You know, I mean, I think that's still an unknown. Why is it going down? Is it just younger people getting sick? You know, I think the answers to that are unknown. But as far as the actual mutation goes, I think there is really no cause um, for alarm. But it is something that comes up. I mean, this comes up in every outbreak and it's like something that people latch onto. And, it came up um, with Ebola. People were worried that it was mutating and getting worse. Um, you know, I've even talked to like historians who are like, oh yeah, they, people said that about the pandemic of 1918. And they're like, it's so crazy because nobody even sequenced viruses back then. So there's like actually no evidence, but people were worried about it. So this just seems to come up every time there's a pandemic.
0: Well, I am happy you're such an optimist. And with that, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Uh, This has been very informative and very great to have you here. Thank you.
1: Sure. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure.
0: We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or future story suggestions, please reach out to us on social media. Thank you. And we hope you enjoyed the RP HealthCast.